Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn in them to our study of the book of Galatians. I want to focus our attention tonight on verses 19 through 29, continuing our study through that passage. So you can follow along as I read it for us. Apostle Paul says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. Let's pray together. Father, as we begin our time tonight, as we look into your word, we are thankful. Thankful that we have it. Thankful that we can look into it. Thankful that you have shown us yourself by its message, by its truth. Thankful that we can know you and that we can live for you by being equipped for every good deed through your power to save us, your power to fill us with your spirit, your power to motivate us and to Cause us by all of that to walk according to your spirit that we might reflect Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us tonight to learn what we must and what we need to and to cause it to change us into the Christ, into Christ likeness, that we might be more diligent in our obedience to you, and in our service to one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, when we were here last Lord's Day, we began to study the question that the Apostle Paul asks in verse 19. The question that he asks there is, why the law then? The logical question based upon all that the Apostle Paul has spoken the Galatians about. They were being tempted to go back to the law or to follow 
some set of rituals for their own justification. They were being challenged by the Judaizers to be circumcised and being challenged to believe that through circumcision they in some way inherited some kind of righteousness through their actions. And we know that when Paul asks the question, why or why the law, that he's talking about the law of God. Specifically, however, he's talking about the law that had been given through Israel to, or by Moses, by the hand of Moses, to Israel. And as he spoke in the previous verses, it was ordained by angels. In other words, it was set there and their hands of approval were on it per se. They were, they were bringing it about through God to the people of Israel. But we, as people here tonight, many of us, maybe there are some among us who are Jews, we are not Jews. And so because it was given to Israel, we cannot in any way, however, think that because we are not Jews, we cannot think that the law has no effect upon us. We think about God's law to Israel. We cannot get in our minds in the idea that, that God's law has no, no real uh, place in my life or that it has no effect upon me. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 that the works of the law have been written in our hearts. God, by His mercy, by His grace, by His sovereign plan, by His providence, has written His law in our hearts, and therefore it does to each of us just like the law written by God on the tablets of stone and given to Israel. It does to us just like it did to every Jew that was under the law. It condemned them because... We, just like them, are lawbreakers. That's who we are as people. That's who we are in our fallenness. So the law, as we saw last Lord's Day, was given in order to expose sin. This is what the Apostle Paul highlights in verse 19. Why the law? It was added because of transgression. That is simply to say that the law does not stop sin, The law exposes sin. The very righteous nature of the law, being that it was the mind and heart of God spoken, reveals sin. It is the law that uncovers or exposes sin for what it is. It is the law, by means of its exposing of our sin, that drives us to the promise of God. This is the intent of the law. And we understand from verse 19 and the previous verses that the promise of God, the promised seed, the Apostle Paul says it was given until the seed should come. We know who the seed is. Verse 16 says, and to your seed, that is Christ. He is the fulfillment of of the promise to Abraham. So the law is in place. It is revealing sin until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. And so by means of the law, 
Our sin is exposed, opening our eyes to the need for Christ. Opening our eyes to the need for a Savior. And therefore, as we learned last week, Christ is central to the gospel. You do not have the gospel unless you have Jesus Christ. It may be news that sounds good. It may be news that appeases the guilty conscience by way of its works. It may be news that seemingly seems as if you can accomplish that on your own, but it is not good news in itself if it is not centered on Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is a necessity for the law. There is a necessity for God's law. It exposes sin, and it drives us to the place of mercy and forgiveness, who is Jesus Christ. So I need, if I don't need Christ, then I can save myself. If I can save myself, why would I ever need a Savior? So God brings about the law to expose sin, to open our eyes to the reality of who we really are. So the law, therefore, is supplementary. It is in addition to, if you will, it exposes sin. And it was temporary, as the Apostle Paul said. It was temporary until Christ came, who is, in fact, the personification of the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And it was ordained by angels and given through a mediator who was God's appointed mediator on this earth for the law, which was Moses. But if you're like the, gent, the, the Galatian Christians, if you're like those being tempted to follow after the law, then you know that the more that Paul speaks about the law and the promise... The more he talks of the law and the more you understand the promise, the more it sounds like the law is contrary to the promise of God. That somehow it seems as if the law is working against the promise of God. And so, in our text tonight, Paul asks this second question. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? In other words, if the law is brought in in order to extenuate or uncover, if you will, expose sin, doesn't that seem to be working against the law? It's somewhat like the question in verse 19, to ask that question. That was the question concerning the purpose of the law, right? Why the law? What is the purpose for the law? And we learn that the law does have a purpose. So if the law's purpose is to expose sin, doesn't that purpose go against the purpose of the promise, which is to save life? If the law exposes sin, which brings about death, doesn't that work against the promise, which has a purpose to save? And the answer that Paul gives is the strongest negative you can give in the original language. Meginita, it's no, 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 no. Don't ever think like that. May it never be, he says. That is as far from reality as you could ever get. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Absolutely not. And then Paul begins to explain why. 
And that's where we want to spend our time tonight. Why is Paul saying that? It seems like that would be the case. Why would Paul say, absolutely not? Well, first is this. The first reason that the law is not contrary to the promise is because the law's intent is different than the promise's intent. The intent of the law and the intent of the promise are different. In other words, the law's intent was never to give life. God never gave the law to have an intent, to have a purpose to give life, while the promise's intent has always been to give life. Notice what he says in verse 21, For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. What is Paul saying? He's just simply saying that the law cannot produce life. It was never intended to produce life. If it could then have produced life, if you could get life through some kind of keeping of the ritual, some kind of religious activity, if you could in fact make yourself righteous, then the promise would be unnecessary. But the very fact that God gave a promise shows the very opposite fact that the law cannot produce life. You see what Paul is doing? Paul is using an argument and saying, listen, the reason that we have a promise is because the law could not ever give life. It's another argument for the same question that he just argued for in verse 19. Why the law? To expose sin. Why the law? Because the law can't impart life. Because we needed to have something else. It's really the opposite by saying, why the promise? Well, the promise is because the law can't give you life. And the proof of that is the fact that God gave a promise, because God would have never had to give a promise had the law been able to save. Now, the legalists, the Judaizers, were trying to convince the Galatian believers of just that very fact. They were saying that the way to gain righteousness before God was by meticulously following the law. And when you follow the law, you gain, they say, eternal life. They said it's fine, as we learned in verse chapters 1 and 2, it's fine if you want to believe in Jesus, Jesus is part of it, but Jesus isn't enough. And so their whole argument was the reality that Jesus Christ is not sufficient to save. In other words, they're saying that the promise cannot save. The promise made to Abraham wasn't enough. Even though that promise was made 430 years before Abraham, before the law ever came, as Paul broke, made clear in chapter 3. And so what the Judaizers were saying to the Galatian believers is, listen, God gave a promise to Abraham, yes, but that promise wasn't enough. We needed something more, and so God gave the law. And so while it's true that God is promising to us that He will rescue us, the way the which we are being rescued is through the keeping of the law. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. 
That is absolutely not true. In fact, it's totally opposite of that. The very reason why God gave the law was simply to expose your sin and expose your need for the promise. That would have been very tempting. The idea of meticulously following after rules and regulations, that would have been very tempting and is tempting to the fallen nature. This is why it's so popular in religious circles, even in our world. People go around following after religious activities and religious rituals all over the place. There's all kinds of religions in our world that are built upon the activity of some kind of religious performance. A performance-based approach to Christianity is very popular. Sadly, it's even popular in even what might be called frontline evangelical Bible-believing churches. There are even those who would call themselves Bible-believing churches that carry themselves in such a way that while they're not believing in the promise, they are believing in their spiritual activity as if that somehow secures them before God. There are still some who base their righteousness on personal religious activity. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He continues, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Interesting phraseology, the the righteousness of God, God's righteousness has been revealed. In what way? How has it been revealed? It has been revealed in the reality of the promised seed coming to us. It is Jesus Christ. Apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What righteousness is that? It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe There is no distinction. There is no distinction. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, doesn't matter if you're Gentile. Faith in Jesus Christ brings about a relationship with the one in whom the promise is. In fact, turn for a moment over to Romans chapter 3. Just to see this ourselves. Romans chapter 3 and verse 3. Apostle Paul, obviously talking to the Jews, he's, he's just in chapter 2, condemned all men. We're all guilty before God. And he talks about the difference between the law and being condemned under the law in chapter 2. And he says, then what advantage has the Jew? In other words, if the Jew has gotten the law, they've had the written law and they fail, and the the Gentile who doesn't have the written law, if he does right, then, then is that not the reality of his own heart and living by the law in his own heart? I mean, is isn't he doesn't he seemingly come out better? You've had the law, you failed the law, but they didn't have the law, but it was a law they kept anyway in their heart. He said, what, what advantage then is that to us as Jews? What, what, what is the benefit of circumcision? 
Paul's making the same argument he's made with the Galatian believers. Well, you, you want to go back to circumcision. Here he is with the Romans, the believers in Rome, and he's saying, what benefit is circumcision as a Jew? Verse 2, he says, it's great in every respect. First of all, we were entrusted with the oracles of God. First of all, it's a great benefit to us because we were the first to hear this from God. This is a great benefit to us because it does what it's supposed to do. It has exposed our sin. That's a great benefit to us. And he says, well, okay, okay, we have, we have the law. If, if some did not believe, their, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Okay, since, since we have that benefit and we didn't believe it, does that mean it's going to nullify what God has done and the promise of God? Paul says, no. Verse 4, let God be found true, every man be found a liar as it's written, that you might be justified in your words and you might prevail when you are judged. So, so if our unrighteousness then demonstrates the righteousness of God, what do we say about that? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Paul says, no, 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 no. You cannot, you cannot say God is unrighteous, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if, through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged? Why am I still being judged as a sinner? If, if I fail, this is what the Jews asking Paul's intimating the Jews are asking as he's writing this, because this would have been in their minds. If through my failure somebody else came and God was glorified through that, then why am I still being judged as a sinner? Wasn't that a good thing? Paul says, why not say, as slanderously reported, as some affirm to say, let us do evil that good may come. So their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it's written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have sinned. All have turned aside. Together they become useless there. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat's an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. Poison of ass was on their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Path of peace they do not know. They have not known it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the condition of all men. Everybody, Jews, Greeks, we're all there. Paul says that's the condition. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be closed. and All the world may become what? Accountable to God. This is what Galatians 3 is saying. This is what Galatians chapter 3 is saying. All men are held accountable to God. Why? Because the law cannot impart life. The law cannot give life. It never could. It never could. It was never intended by God to impart life. The only thing that the law can do is curse. By way of its own action, by way of its outworking, that's all the law can do. It can all only bring a curse upon you. And in a passive sense, passively, the law is written, the law, if it is not acting, it doesn't 
bless you in a direct way, it only brings some kind of blessing in an indirect way, in a passive way, by what? By not cursing the one who keeps the law. But that's all it can do. It curses or does not curse. It cannot bring life. And of course, the problem is that no one except Jesus Christ is able to keep the law. So why is the law not contrary to the promise? Because it has a different intent. It has a different intent. There's a second reason the law is not contrary to the promise. Paul says the law is not contrary to the promise because like the promise, get this, the law protects us. You say, what? The law protects us. Yeah, look at verse 22. But, there's a contrast, but the Scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It says the law protecting us. Paul says, but the Scripture. But the Scripture. He means the law. When he says the Scripture, he means the law. That means that all Scripture is God's perfect law. Sometimes when we think about the law, we think, well, the Ten Commandments are the law of God, and we know that that can't be the case because everything God says is law. Certainly, the Ten Commandments are that. They were the law written on stone. They encapsulated all that God would say in order to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself as Jesus encapsulated them when he was in his ministry on earth. And yet here, Paul says, but the Scripture has shut up all men under sin. All Scripture is law, and its message, as I said, is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. So the Scripture has shut up all men under sin. Now, beloved, tonight we have to think about that and see that that is a grace of God. What is a grace of God, Pastor? That we have been shut up under sin by the Scriptures. That is a grace of God. The Word from God rightfully shuts us up. I don't mean our voices. That's not what Paul means. Paul means the Scriptures, by way of God's law and exposing our sin and what it does and its intent, actually protects us. That may not seem like a protection for us, but it is. And I want to try to help us see that. The Word... The original language for shut up is sugklio. Sugklio. It again is a compound word, very popular in the language of Paul. Paul would use, take two words and two words that meant things and, and slam them together, sometimes even creating a new word that hadn't been spoken. Sugklio is, is this compound word, and it simply means literally to be shut together to be shut together. The idea here is to be imprisoned 
to be locked up. To be locked up. To be behind closed doors. To be in a cell and the door locked behind you. In other words, the law, the Scripture, has imprisoned the sinner. That's what Paul is saying. The Scripture has imprisoned all men under sin. Why is that important? Because sin brings guilt, doesn't it? The knowledge of sin brings the knowledge of guilt. And so the law imprisons the sinner in guilt. You know the law. You know what it says. You break the law. You know you're guilty. You have a sense of guilt upon you for breaking the law. And nothing you do allows you to escape the prison of that guilt. The Scriptures have locked you up in your guiltiness. Your conscience bears witness against you. You look for ways to appease and hide the ringing bell of your conscience and your guilt before a holy God, and you cannot do it. You are imprisoned in your guilt by the law. That is God's intent. God's intent with the law in order to protect us by showing our accountability before God, like Romans chapter 3 says. We are accountable to God. We are accountable to God. Why? Because guilt drives us to seek a solution for our guilt. That's what it does. This is the intent of the law. This is the intent. This is the only things the Scriptures can do for a sinner is open their eyes to the ugliness of their sin. Point them to the one who can relieve their guilt. Again, Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, the path of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the condition of man's heart that the Word of God exposes. And it lets every man know in their guilt that they cannot excise themselves from the prison of their own sin. So that every mouth is closed, every person in all of the world and humanity becomes understanding of their accountability before God. Why? Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. Why? Because that's not the intent of the law. The intent of the law is simply to produce a knowledge of sin. For God, Romans chapter 11, verse 32, God has shut up all in a disobedience 
so that he may show mercy to all. All of that, beloved, is simply to say that by enclosing all of us in our known depravity before him, before God, the law does all of us a good thing. The law does all of us something that is very good for us because it drives us to despair. It drives us to despair. And driving us to despair is a protecting us from not knowing what we need to know about us. Our greatest need is to know that we cannot save ourselves, that we must go to one who can. The law is therefore protecting us from not knowing that we cannot earn righteousness on our own. It's protecting us from being ignorant to the reality that by the works of our own righteous deeds we'll never gain righteousness before God. That's what it protects us from. And so while the law has no power to give life, it can only curse, but by showing that it cannot save us, the law helps us to look to the Savior who can. Rather than being contrary to the promise, Paul says, it actually works in concert with the promise. The law imprisons us so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Notice verse 23, but before faith came, We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. What is Paul saying? He's saying that it doesn't matter which side of the law you're on. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're a Greek. It doesn't matter whether you lived before the law came or whether you were born after the law was given. The purpose of the law is the same, to point all of us to the Savior through our known guilt. To point us to the Savior through our known guilt. We have been shut up to the faith by knowing our sin. Before the law came, that's what it did. And now Paul explains how the law brings us to the Savior. How the law brings us to the Savior. You notice he uses a metaphor to explain it. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. This is so wonderful. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What a wonderful picture. The law is our tutor. Law is our tutor until we believe. The law is our prison guard 
It has been given by God to expose sin, to, to hold us in that place where we recognize and understand our sin. And all of that, Paul says, is our tutor. It, it is a, 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 a tutor until we believe. This is a great word for Paul to use. In the original language, it's pedagogos. Pedagogos. It's... The Greek word for child is paidos, at least in the genitive form. And the word for leader is agagas. So, so when you put those two words together, as Paul often does, you get the word that Paul is using here for tutor, pedagogas. Pedagogas is a child leader. That's what it is. A child leader. In ancient Roman times, slavery was popular. We heard some about that this morning. In fact, there are some historians that will say that during the Roman period, they estimate that somewhere over 50% of the people were slaves. That simply means that most most of the people in the Roman Empire who uh lived during that time, were some form of indentured servant to someone else. They were a slave of some other person, and many of them would have been the pedagogas of the family. They would have been the child leader of the family. What does that mean? Well, that meant that they would have the responsibility for taking the, the children, the, the others who were part of the family, and delivering them safely to the master teacher, the one under whom they would get their learning, the didaskalos, the teacher. So this is the image that Paul is using here to explain what the law does for us who are believers. This is the image to illustrate how the law brings us to Christ. The law, he says, is our child leader. It is our child leader. It has been granted to us, given to us, by the mercy and grace of a sovereign, loving God, so that it might expose our sin, so that it might imprison us in the reality of our depravity, so that we know we need a Savior, and then it leads us, like a child leader, to the master teacher. It does that with safety in mind, carefully ensuring that we're, we're not taken captive in some way, some other way on the way, and yet it does it with severity so that if we step out of line, the law shows us again that we are not to do that. We're out of line. So I think we can see in our mind's eye what Paul is emphasizing about the law. The law was given by God graciously so that it might deliver us to Christ. The law wasn't given that it might separate us from Christ so that we might, wasn't given so that we might think we can do it on our own. It was given in order to expose the reality that we cannot do it on our own to imprison us in our depravity and lead us to the one who can free us from it. What Paul says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that, that's the purpose, we may be justified, not by keeping the law, but by faith. 
leads us to be justified through faith in the promised seed who is Jesus Christ who became a curse for us. We were cursed. The law cursed us. God gave the law. And the law leads us to the one who took the curse for us. And notice verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. After you believe upon Jesus Christ, there's no longer a need for the child leader. There's no longer a need for you to be led to the master. You are unified with the master. You believe in the master. You are now a slave of the master. You are now under the care of the master. You, you, the, the tutor releases you to the care of the master. The tutor has done its task. It has done what it has been created to do. You are one with the master, as Paul's words to the Ephesians. We are unified in Christ. This is what he will say in verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have what? Clothed yourselves with Christ. We're unified with Christ. You're sons of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You have a legal union with Christ. You have a, an actual union with Christ. You are joined with Christ. Therefore, there's neither Jew nor Greek. You're not separate people. You're not going over here. There's not this, this hierarchy whereby you're the righteous ones and, and then over here, these ones who, who believed but, but have not carried out the works of the law, they're somehow different. No, you're, you're both in the same team now. There's, there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Faith has unified you. And so if you belong to Christ, Paul says, it's faith that makes you an offspring of Abraham. It's not the law. You're heirs according to the promise. So the intent of the law was never to save, Paul says. So you've mistaken it. The Judaizers are saying that's the intent of the law. Paul's saying, no, 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 you got it wrong. The intent of the law was never to save. Rather, the intent of the law was to expose your need to be saved. It was to expose the reality of an inability in yourself, an impossibility in yourself to save yourself. The intent of the law was that it might, might bring you safely to Christ so that you might be saved by the mercy and grace of God through the promise in whom you must believe. It's faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says to the Galatians, why the law? The law was given that it might reveal sin. Was the law then contrary to the promise? No, no, not at all. Not at all. The law and the promise work in concert together. The law leads you to the promise. The law delivers you to the feet of Jesus Christ. And after its purpose is accomplished, there is no need for the law to show your unrighteousness. That's what the law does. It exposes your unrighteousness. There's no need for you to have your unrighteousness exposed unto be saved. You are saved. Well, the question for us tonight then is this. So how then, how then does the law now 
relate to those who believe? How does the law then relate to those who believe? Well, the Apostle Paul here in Galatians chapter 3 doesn't answer that question. He doesn't, he doesn't begin to address that question here. But I want to begin to try to help us just with a few answers tonight. First is this. We know that the law cannot impart life to us. That is clear. We know that the law cannot give life. It's impossible for it to give life. It was never intended to give life. It has no inherent ability to give life. But the law can show us how to live out the life that we now have in Christ. Right? The law is perfect. It is righteous. It is just. It is a reflection of the very character and nature of God. And Jesus boils it down to those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with your heart, hold, so, heart soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor in your, as yourself. The law shows us just how we now can live in honor to Christ. In other words, we walk by faith in what the law says, in what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures don't shut us up under sin anymore. We love Christ. We live for Christ. The Scriptures show us just how to reflect that in our life. That doesn't mean that the law doesn't expose sin in our heart, right? The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It exposes sin all the time, and... By God's grace, it does that. And so when it exposes sin, we repent of that sin and we run to God. And we confess our sin to God. And He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Not because we did something righteous, but because we are in Jesus Christ. So we walk by faith in what the law says, not to gain righteousness, but because we are already righteous in Christ. So we ought not to ignore the law simply because the Apostle Paul says here, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. Just because Paul says that doesn't mean that we just ignore the law for what it says. We don't don't ignore the law, but rather we allow the law now to be guiding us as we walk by faith in the promises of God. Secondly, secondly though, We need to to ground our obedience. We need to ground our walk of faith in the promises of God and not the law. You understand what I mean? We need to ground our obedience not not in gaining something before God, but in the promises of God of what we have in Christ already. In other words, we obey because we know who we are in Christ. We, we know what God has said He has given us, all of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. All that we have in Christ, all that we, we get because of our unification with Jesus Christ, we live according to those promises and not live by what we think we are to get if we do keep those promises. This is what happens sometimes with us in our own Christian lives and why we get down so much because sometimes we're sinning and we, we, we love that sin and we don't want to turn from that sin. And so we believe in that, that somehow, even though I'm united with Christ, somehow God loves me less than he can love me. Or if I obey God, God will love me more than how he loves me now when 
Maybe I'm not obeying God, and yet the promises of God need to rule the day. Our righteousness cannot be enhanced in any way because of something we do. Why? Because it is not derived from us. The righteousness that we have is the righteousness that comes from God alone, and therefore our obedience only reflects that righteousness. But it never determines it. And so we must obey focusing on the promises of God and not on the duty of the law. And then third, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit's power. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit's power as we walk by faith in the promises of God. Right? That is to be the motivator for our obedience. Uh, we'll get there in a little while, but Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the inherent reality, this habitual continuing of life with no sense of remorse, no sense of desire to to not do those things. But the fruit of the Spirit isn't like that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There is no law. Do them freely. Walk in them by the power of the Spirit. Live in that way. Spirit-empowered faith the walk of faith as we trust what God says in His Word, and then walk by that faith in what God's Word says. So the law of God, which is the Scriptures, is not nullified because we are saved. It's not nullified because we are united with Jesus Christ. In fact, the law of God is magnified all the more because we are a child of God. Why? Because now in Christ, by faith in Christ, we have the power and we have the enablement to actually do what God has commanded us to do. So the law is no longer an imprisoner of us. It is something we look to with joy to walk by because it reflects Jesus Christ. And so what do we do as Christians? We look to the Scriptures we read them and we, we glean from them the truths of what they say and the practices in which we, how we are supposed to live. And we treasure all of those promises of God for us that we have in Christ. And we rely upon the Spirit to fan the flame within us in our intentions and allow that to be the motivator. The fanned flame of motivation, if you will, to live for the glory of God. 
So as Christians, I, I hear today sometimes, you know, well, I'm not of I'm not of law, I'm of grace, and that's true by way of salvation. Right? That's true. We walk, we stand in grace, but we need the law. We need the law. As unbelievers, it leads us to Christ. And as believers, it guides us in righteous living. Right? Both of those lead both to the place where God is glorified in all things. And Paul says, in Christ, we are heirs according to the promise of God. We are heirs according to the promise of God. We are all sons of God through faith. What a privilege, what a joy that we have our inheritance with Christ, because God, by His grace, showed us who we were through His law. And that law imprisoned us and led us to the place where we said, I can't do it on my own. The Spirit illumined us, regenerated us, opened our eyes, and we believed in Jesus Christ. What a great God. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to know the truth of your word. What a joy for us to realize the reality of why you gave the law and how it is used by you as a mercy and as a grace. And even though in our sinfulness it is a hammer relentless, never bending, only cursing. By your grace, even that is used to draw us to yourself. We realize in our own sinfulness how lost and unable we are to be justified by our efforts. We're like the rich young ruler who goes away with his head hung low because Because in and of himself, he thinks he has done everything in order to justify himself. And yet, he's unwilling to relinquish his hold on all of his riches. He goes away with his head hung low because of it. Unwilling to relinquish all his resources for the sake of Jesus Christ alone. Thank you that you opened our eyes to the reality of our foolishness. All that we were resting upon in our own resources was worthless. And that only in Jesus Christ could we be released from the prison of our sin. We thank you, Lord, for the law. We thank you for the promise. We thank you that in the promise we have an eternal hope of glory. Lord, use us for that end. Use us for the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.